We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. I remember my 11th grade year in high school one night um, driving through town. And, and back then, you know, we, we weren't surfing the web. There wasn't, we didn't even really have cable to watch SportsCenter to know what was going on. But I remember just a casual statement, the DJ on whatever station I was listening to said that Mike Tyson had been beaten in Japan by Buster Douglas. And it was one of the most shocking, like I, I still remember just how disorienting that was. For those of you who were around, you, it wasn't even a fight that I even knew was happening. You know, we had, we had suckered ourselves into a few pay-per-views where you would pay for the fight of the century with Mike Tyson, but the fight would be over, you know, 90 He fought with Michael Spinks in what was supposed to be the fight of the, of the century, and it was over in 90 seconds, and he had just come out of a previous fight where he had knocked his opponent out in 53 seconds. He wasn't just dominating, he was destroying. And when he came to this fight, I think there's a 30 for 30 on it now called 42 to, 42 and 42 to 1, because that was the betting odds on the fight. It wasn't even taken seriously as a fight. His, his cut man didn't even bring his tools to the fight. That's why if you, if you go back and watch clips of the fight, you'll see this. They've taken a silly rubber glove and filled it with cold water to try to get the swelling to go down his eyes, because they never even dreamed that it might come to that. And so for those of you maybe my age and older that remember Tyson's domination, I just remember the fear, that he struck fear in his opponent. So, that, so much so that you just had this feeling that they had lost before they ever stepped in the ring. Same thing happened a few years ago. I'm not an MMA fan, but I remember hearing about Ronda Rousey, and she's kind of coming up through the ranks. She's, she's 12-0. and 0. She's never even been close to a fight, and then she gets beaten, and her entire career falls apart because so much of that career was built on fear and intimidation. And, and I think uh, one of the things you see is that fear has an incredibly power powerful, paralyzing effect on us. You see, Ty Tyson was a great fighter, but I think the fear factor moved him from a great fighter to just an all-out boogeyman that no one felt like they could win. And if you see the trajectory of his career after that Douglas fight, it's never the same because the mystique was broken. Now, most of us aren't going to head into a heavyweight fight, and we're not going to jump in an MMA octagon. But I think we have the same tendencies. We are often faced with, with big situations and little situations that can elicit fear. And the text we're going to look at tonight, I want to see how Nehemiah responds to this challenge. When he might be tempted to fear that he's going to make a faithful response. Our text tonight is in Nehemiah chapter 6 as we continue moving the story forward. The wall's almost complete. And so we come to this chapter with the job almost being done. And tonight, we're going to look at, at the first two of three consecutive intimidation events or, or these episodes where outsiders try to intimidate him. And I want you, as we read through this, to pay attention because I think we can learn a lot from how Nehemiah responds to these fearful situations. 
that we may not fight fights, but we certainly every once in a while, quite frequently, will be faced with a situation where we're challenged to give in, to compromise, to be intimidated. How do we respond appropriately to fear? Nehemiah is going to respond to fear with faith. And so let's look at how he does that. As you, as you look at the text, the work is almost complete. And so you're getting this sense that his enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, that they're starting to get desperate, that it's starting to look like the Jews may actually complete this wall. Uh, and so what we see in this passage in the first nine verses, we're going to see an attempt to really maybe to kill Nehemiah or to, to put him in a situation where he could be killed. And in the second, we're going to see a call to compromise. So let's start looking in verse 1 of chapter 6. When Sanballat and Tobiah and, and, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall, there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gate. So they're finishing the wall. They're putting the finer touches. We got to raise it a little bit more and we got to put the, the doors in. And, and when Nehemiah says here that I had built the wall, he's not trying to be arrogant. He's just recognizing that God is taking care of building this wall that he also recognizes that as a leader, God has used him as an instrument to, to build this wall. Uh, so he, though, throughout, we've seen give credit ultimately to God to do that. And I think even in the following verses, we're going to see the deflection that Nehemiah took not, takes not to preserve himself because of his own importance, but for what he represents as the leader in this wall. Verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono but they intended to do me harm. So this plain of Ono is about seven miles southeast of, of Joppa. And so it's quite a hike from Jerusalem. So he, they knew that he would have to hop on a horse and head out, go through some dangerous lands, whether they intentionally planned to have him robbed or whether it was just the reality of the day, they intend to do him harm. And Nehemiah has the wisdom to understand. He sees through the problem. I can't help but think a little bit that there would be a temptation there to be flattered, right? To compromise. Hey, these leaders want me to come out and meet with them. I've got a chance to build a bridge to the community. I've got a chance to build a bridge to my enemies to make a compromise here. I think the flattery would have been more tempting than, than maybe a first gloss might say, but Nehemiah might have thought, wow, I've achieved something. These guys want to meet me. But the reality is Nehemiah has a broader perspective than that, and he understands that these are enemies, and he understands that they have ill intent. He has a wisdom. And, and also he recognizes that this would be time away from this all-important project that God's ordained me to lead. And so he's not going to be distracted by the flattery and the desire. And what's interesting, he just says no. He doesn't attempt to accuse them of having false motives. He doesn't attempt to escalate the situation. If anything, he sort of de-escalates it. And he just, he says in verse 3, I sent messengers to them saying, I can't, 
I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? So he sends out a word, and, and it's interesting. He's wise in his response, too, because he's like, why would I possibly want to take time away from this work when the irony is that's actually what they wanted him to do? That was their main purpose. And so he's kind of like, hey, I understand you want to meet, but I can't do it. Verse 4, they're persistent. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. They're desperate. They're testing his resolve, but Nehemiah has conviction. He has resolve. He's not going to go to this meeting. In verse 5, they try harder. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. It's, it's an open letter. It's not a sealed letter. Why would you have an open letter? Well, I think Sanballat wanted people to read this letter. He wanted them to see the contents. He wanted them to gossip about Nehemiah. He wanted them to know that Nehemiah was turning this opportunity down. You know, the reality is if these guys really felt it important to meet Nehemiah, they could have come to him. This is not a sincere invitation. The open letter shows you their motives. They want to to drag this guy down. You know, I think about life and our culture, right? We're constantly asked to compromise our beliefs. We're constantly asked to bend and to flex, to, to go along, to get along. Just come to this meeting. That, that we are constantly being asked to compromise our conviction in following the Word of God that we're constantly being asked. Our culture says, meet us halfway, bend a little bit, and, and not to be so radical. Don't be so extreme. Don't impose your beliefs on others. As if the world were really interested in meeting us halfway. And I think Nehemiah's response here is, a, is an example to us to simply disregard to simply be faithful where he's at. God's called him to do something. He's put these people in front of him. They're accomplishing the task. He's single-minded. You know, I, I find myself, I want to argue back and explain the 10 reasons I'm not coming to this meeting so everybody understands that you're wrong. Nehemiah doesn't get caught up in the fray. He simply responds back. But he also doesn't compromise by giving in to maybe what his flesh may want to do and, and becoming an important guy. And so what's interesting in verse 5, it, he, takes, he does take time out to respond. But, but what's interesting when they send this letter in verse 5, in the same way they sent this letter in hand and it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've set up prophets proclaiming concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of their reports. So come, let us take counsel together. Hey, Nehemiah, there's rumors floating around about you. Some people even say you've put prophets in place to prophesy about your ascension to be the king. 
Is Nehemiah going to address these rumors, everyone? He says, then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hand. Rather than distracting himself by being obsessed with the rumors, Nehemiah says, hey, I'm going to stay faithful to do what I do. What you're saying is untrue. He addresses it, but he addresses it directly, and he simply moves on. What, and what's interesting about these accusations, too, Jerusalem has a bit of a reputation a bit of a reputation, right? They've rebelled against Babylon before they were taken into captivity. Prior to that, uh, what was seen as their exodus from, from Egypt certainly was seen as a rebellion. So Nehemiah might have felt tempted to say, hey, we've got to address this. We've got a reputation, but he doesn't. Why? I think ultimately because he trusts God with the outcome, because what does he do at the end of verse 9? Oh, Lord, he cries out to God, strengthen my hands. This is the kind of letter that got the work shut down in Ezra 4. But Nehemiah simply says, oh, Lord, strengthen my hands. I'm not here to argue about being faithful. I'm just going to be faithful. I'm not here to get distracted and caught up in the, in the, in the mess. I'm just going to be faithful. That, that there's always a kernel of truth in the slander, and we can get so distracted and caught up in defending it that we don't keep going with what are doing. All sorts of accusations are being thrown around about Christians today, right? We're judgmental, we're harsh, we're extreme, we don't love people, we want power. There's always a kernel of truth. There's always someone who's lived that way that gives them just enough evidence to make accusations. So we do we spend all our time fighting that, trying to put down every single rumor about our faith that's out there, or do we live faithful and say, oh, Lord, strengthen my hands? So rather than getting pulled offside, he responds to the truth and gets back to work. You, know, you see the arguments on social media, the arguments uh, in the news, on the TV, the ideas that are out there. And I get this sense sometimes with Nehemiah that he has such a secure position in his relationship with God, such a clear understanding of his calling with God, that it's almost like he's above the fray. I don't mean that he's aloof and uncaring. I don't mean that he's careless but it's almost like he's got an eternal perspective here when everybody else is caught up in the day-to-day. -day. I, I mean, I've just got to think, if, if you took a public opinion on this with Nehemiah, people would be like, you've got to go meet with those guys. They might be able to help us. You've got to go meet with these guys. They may elevate you. You've got to go meet with these guys. They've made accusations against you that we have to address. But Nehemiah's like, no, I've got my work. I'm going to do it. Sort of the idea of, of just keeping your head down and understanding your role and what's of vital importance. And I think, man, as us, as Christians, we can get caught up in the day-to-day -day sometimes to, to look up from our work and get so distracted that we're caught up in every argument. 
Instead of resting, God strengthen me. Instead of trusting and being faithful to God, God would want. And in verse 9, I think it's interesting here. For they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop the work. Those guys were counting on their bluster, intimidating Nehemiah. They were counting on the fear of what they were trying to do. Sort of this letter is almost like a, hey, remember when we sent a letter or when those guys sent a letter like this before? It got it shut down. So that maybe Nehemiah would say, whoa, we got to stop. But he's not intimidated. I think a lot of times this is how fear works. It's just the threat of something that has a tendency to paralyze us. I was reading a story uh, during his years as a premier of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev denounced many of the policies and atrocities of Joseph Stalin. Once, as he censured Stalin in a public meeting, Khrushchev was interrupted by a shout from a heckler in the audience, you are one of Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Khrushchev roared, who was that? An agonizing silence followed. Nobody in the room dared to raise their hand a muscle. And then Khrushchev replied quietly, now you know why. That fear has this ability to keep us from doing what's right. You look at human history, it's filled with it. And, and so for Nehemiah to simply take this thing that has the potential to be a big thing and to set it aside and say, I'm being faithful, to look to God and to trust God with the result, I think is an incredible example that he's going to let the chips fall where they are. If any of you have take, taken Equip to Counsel with John Henderson, one of the, one of the most significant things we work on in that year is, is this idea of sin, and, and he calls it the descent into depression. And he shows how our sin is rooted in one of two things. It's either, it's either lust or it's fear. That both of those things are ultimately rooted back to pride and a desire to control, that, that lust is a control to obtain. It's, it's for me to have something that's not rightfully mine. It's what James talks about in James 4 when he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? It's this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot attain, obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so one of the manifestations of our pride is lust, lust to control, to, to desire what's not ours. But the other significant response to pride is fear. This is the desire to control, the desire to protect, to hold on to something that's not necessarily mine to hold on to. That, that fear causes us to want to protect and to control, or it causes us to deny or repress. That's, I'm not seeing anything, la, 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 la. It's, you know, it's like if you say it out loud, it's going to go away. 
Fear is what caused Abraham and Isaac both to lie to Abimelech about their wives, right? He's like, no, she's my sister. Both of them almost had severe consequences, that their fear panicked. Fear is what sends David when he finds out Bathsheba's pregnant to say, hey, Joab, send Uriah home for the weekend. Fear is this thing that eats at us and can cause us to be driven to anger, to be driven to clinging, and all of that boils back to this idea of pride. It's all rooted in me. That's not what we see with Nehemiah here. I mean, do you think maybe it might be possible if he didn't respond, you know, if, if, we, could re, if we saw the alternate reality of this story that Nehemiah has been here, these people are all following him, and now he's fearful that, man, when this project ends, will they still listen to me? Maybe I need to go have this meeting so that I can have some recognized authority in this room. Maybe I need to go meet with these guys so that I can have a, a more anchored authority. Maybe I'm afraid they're going to take me out, so I need to build a bridge to them. I'm not trusting God with whatever he will do with my life, but I'm trying to control and navigate and, and connect in a way that holds on to what I've got. That we, fear is really driven by this warped perspective that ultimately comes from pride that says that this thing, whatever it is, money, power, people, uh, influence, relationship, this thing is mine to protect. It's thinking more highly of yourself in a way that's, that doesn't say, God's in control of this and I'm going to be faithful, but said, this is my thing and I'm going to make sure nobody touches it. And then you start down this world of, of grasping and holding and anger anytime anybody comes at you. You don't take critique. You, you just hold on tightly with everything you've got. And guess what? You can't hold on to it. And that's why at the bottom of this pride chart, whether you go through lust or whether you go through fear, or through fear they're both going to lead you to depression because you can't capture that thing you wanted and you can't hold on to that thing that's not really yours. That the only response is to understand it's all God's. So we don't see that full chart in motion here with Nehemiah, but I firmly believe that, that the reason this is not even a temptation for him is because he understands all this is God. So he says, God, strengthen me. He's not intimidated. God, strengthen me. This is your work. I mean, think about it. We've seen all the way back to Ezra chapter 1 with Cyrus, then with Darius, then with Artaxerxes, then with all the supplies that have been provided. How can you read these stories and not think that God's hand is all over this, that this is a project he loves, he delights in? Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, you've all been faithful I delight in the work you're doing. Why would, that, why would those guys be tempted to go put themselves in cahoots with these two wicked men? But we see it all the time. Nehemiah has a perspective that this isn't my work. It's not my job, so I'm going to be faithful. And I'm not going to be tempted and pulled away by all the stuff. This cycle of pride leads to depression. And, and so... 
What's interesting is, is each of these oppositions that we see in these two stories, they're really driven to fear because if I can get you to be afraid, I don't even have to defeat you. Most of Tyson's opponents were defeated before they ever stepped in the ring because he got in their head. You see this all the time in sports, right? And so if these guys can just intimidate you and get you to back off, they send this letter, Nehemiah might have been tempted to say, you know what, this could get ugly. Let's, let's step back just a little bit. But he's not going to be intimidated. But now, O oh Lord, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah would say to us, this is God's story. It's not your story. It's not my story. Do you really believe that? Because I don't always. Do you really believe that this is God's story? We sang in that song, the breath I have is yours. Do you really believe that? Because if you can't believe that, you're always going to struggle. You're always going to try to control the narrative. You're always going to control the way you interact with others. Can you imagine the freedom Nehemiah feels to just say, you know what, God? This is your story, not mine. It feels scary, but it brings incredible freedom. You don't have to impress. You don't have to control. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be paranoid that you're going to lose stuff. To say, God, this is your story. That's what Nehemiah does here. What's interesting is these guys don't give up easily. They're going to come for his reputation. Look at verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, Shemaiah is a prophet. And to this point, we would have assumed that Shemaiah is a faithful prophet. The son of Deliah, son of Mahabathel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us be together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. I'm not. Hey, Nehemiah, I've got some information and I'm about to save your life. We need to go to the temple because these guys are coming by night to kill you. Is it possible for people within the community who have the appearance of faithfulness to be traitors? We see that throughout Scripture, right? But here's a guy who apparently has sold his loyalty to the opposition, and, and Nehemiah recognizes it. This is bad advice this guy has given me. Immediately, we don't see him pondering, processing. He immediately knows that it's bad information. But he offers a morsel to Nehemiah. Hey, come with me. I can save you. But Nehemiah knows he can't enter the temple legitimately. What happened to Uzziah when he entered in to offer incense? He gets stricken with leprosy. So this guy in front of me has given me bad counsel, contrary to the word of God. And Nehemiah asks him two questions. You know, first question, verse 11. But I said, so shut your man as I run away. And when I, and 
what man such as I could run into the temple and live? I will not go in. You know, Nehemiah could have potentially felt like, hey, man, look at all God's done through me. I've got a special connection. Look at all that I've done. I've got special access. Let's do it for the good of the group. Surely God will understand if we run into the temple for protection. You know, we read this story a lot of times in two dimensions, right? We go episode to episode, but, but the low-grade pressure of these five requests coming from these guys, and now all of a sudden this story on the back of it, hey, they're trying to kill you, that it's a reasonable thing to think Nehemiah might have been tempted to say, hey, okay, I'm going, I'm, let's do it. But he might be tempted to think, you know, I did pretty well. I'm gonna cut myself some slack. I'm gonna take the easy way out. But Nehemiah is an example of us of just the constant diligence of watching his heart. I think that can be another temptation we face as Christians is, is we've done it well for a while. We've lived in a, in a season where we kind of measure ourselves and feel like we've been relatively faithful. So I'm going to take a few days off. I'm going to be a little less diligent. I'm going to be a little less vigilant as the enemy attacks here's this opportunity for respite. Sure, I'll take it. But the reality is Nehemiah recognizes he's watching. He sees this whole thing unfolding from him and he, he applies wisdom. He knows that a true prophet would never contradict the truth. This is a pretty smooth temptation, but Nehemiah's relationship with God is strong and he recognizes right off the bat, this is a, this is a temptation, not an opportunity. Such a man as I run away, God has brought me this far. Look at all that God's done through Nehemiah. And you're telling me I need to be afraid of these jokers? God has brought me this far. Why should I flee? Do I let fear drive me away? Do I trust God? How can I be a leader of people if I'm constantly driven and pulled by fear? Now, the text doesn't go into his inner thoughts. I don't know if he maybe felt some fear, but he certainly responds over that fear in such a way to realize that whatever he's feeling, he's faithful. What man such as I could go into the temple and live? You know, this prophet's words contradict God's revealed word. That we're tempted there's a temptation I think we can feel sometimes in our culture to, to sort of default to the subjective. Just do this thing, it feels good. God couldn't be that way. God couldn't dislike that activity. God couldn't want you to suffer, to go through hardship. I, I hear a lot of that, just this application of subjective truth that God must be this way. But with Nehemiah, it's anchored in truth. I can't go in there and live. I know what's true. So you're coming to me with this counsel. I'm not, I'm not impressed, even though you're a priest. So he simply says, I will not go in. 
It's such an irony here. Shemaiah is trying to get Nehemiah to compromise and to give up his good name. Because what happens in the community if Nehemiah flees into the temple to save his own self? The word gets out, Nehemiah is toast. Ironically, the man that tried and pulled off sides, Shemaiah's name is now toast. That, that he's no longer trustworthy, faithful priest. But Nehemiah has discernment. He sees through the issue. Verse 12, I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. You've got this situation. They try to take your name down, but God has given him wisdom to understand the reality of what's happened. Verse 13, for their purpose, for the purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. That my fear, my desire for self-preservation, my desire to hold on to what's mine, my desire for my personal safety, my desire to remain in control, that that fear would lead me to sin. What's the ultimate sin here? It would have been not trusting in God. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. And again, Nehemiah doesn't get caught up in a political movement. He doesn't get caught up in a, in a, in a desire to discredit. He doesn't get caught up with an argument about why he shouldn't do this thing. We've got no record of him putting out the false priest. He simply replies, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. That word afraid is all over the place here. They wanted to make him afraid. But guess what? He's not defending himself, and he's not catching himself and getting distracted by taking them out. What does he do? He says, God, you take care of them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I think... We're prone to make sure that everybody understands. In reality, Nehemiah just says, Lord, take care of this problem. Expose these people. Nehemiah fully trusts God to settle the affairs again because Nehemiah knows that this is God's story, not my story. And then in verse 15, he says, the wall was finished. 25th day of the month of Elam in 52 days, less than two months, the wall is complete. We could do all sorts of what if. What if Nehemiah had taken the trip out of town? What if Nehemiah would have hidden the temple? What if these guys' plans would have accomplished their purpose? But we don't have to do that because Nehemiah was faithful to recognize that this wasn't his story. He was resisting, he resisted the temptation to want to fix it or hold, to hold on to it. You know, I get amazed when I travel overseas and I hear the prosperity gospel, the outworkings of the prosperity gospel, where I talk to people in our own community 
They just have this language that God's going to protect you or he wants you to just enjoy life and to, to be blessed beyond measure. And if, if you give, you'll get more back. And just all these little ideas or, or the, 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 the positive gospel, whatever you want to call it, the idea that God just wants you to have the fullest life you could imagine. And it's not defined by Scripture. It's defined by whatever you imagine the fullness of life. A lot of businesses will even use Christianese in their pitches when they bring in their employees to say, these are the principles that lead you to a happy life. And it's all rainbows and unicorns and there's just this idea that's not realistic with life. And that's why it's so shocking when you sit and you think about Scripture. You walk through God's Word and all throughout the Word, there's conflict that God's anointed, it's, it's more common, I think, at least as common, to see God's chosen experience conflict as opposed to some utopian peace on this earth. That Abel is faithful and what happens to him? He gets killed because his brother's jealous. Esau seeks to kill Jacob. Joseph is hated by his brothers and faces being sold into slavery. Moses is repeatedly opposed during the exodus and during the wandering. David, early in life, is sought by Saul, who, who wants to take him out. And several of the Psalms we read are about this injustice of, of my enemies seeking me out and crying out to God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, several of the prophets face intense persecution and mocking and shame. And yet we kind of have this hope or dream that if we're faithful enough to God, we won't face that opposition. I think the Bible has a different message in that it tells us how to live in spite of that opposition. And I think if we look at Nehemiah's example tonight, we see clearly... Um, how to do that. Paul's going to say to Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. Guys, this is the norm. The, the opposition that Nehemiah faces isn't an exception. It's the norm. And Nehemiah's response shouldn't be seen as some radical exception, but it should be a model for us that he doesn't get challenged, it's not that he didn't feel an instantaneous fear, but it's that he didn't let that fear drive his response, that he recognized this is God's story. These people can't do anything to me, that he didn't try to hold on tightly to what he felt like was his, but he said, God, you strengthen me. And then when he's faced for actually the fear of his life, he says, God's got this. God can take care of this. You see, the Bible doesn't call us to flee from the difficult challenges. It doesn't tell us to execute those that make the difficult challenges. It calls us to trust Him. We're living in this little bitty, teeny tiny period of history. Like our entire 60, 70, 80 years, 90 years is like just infinitely small in relation to eternity. 
And I think that Nehemiah has that perspective to say, hey, whatever you do with my life here is fine. Imagine the freedom if you and I could just walk like that. Why do we get so concerned about our momentary comforts or our momentary pleasures? Why do we let our flesh drive us to hold on? Now, I think Nehemiah is a great example here of how we live. How do we respond? Uh, the lady, Hannah Hunter, that wrote Hind's Feet in High Places says she was once paralyzed by fear until she heard this sermon about a bird. She said, the, the preacher said in the sermon, a wise bird knows that a scarecrow is simply an advertisement. It announces some very juicy, juicy, delicious fruit is to be had for the picking. There are scarecrows in all the best gardens. If I'm wise, I treat the scarecrow as though it were an invitation. Every giant in the way, which makes me feel like a grasshopper, is only a scarecrow beckoning me to God's richest blessings. He concluded, faith is the bird which loves to perch on scarecrows. All our fears are groundless. You and I have a Savior. Jesus died for our sin, and if we repent, if we place our faith in Christ, then we are imputed with His righteousness. We don't strive, we don't effort to clean ourselves up that his righteousness is mine, that when I stand before God, he sees me not as a sinner that he needs to overlook, but he sees me in the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel, that I place my faith in Christ and I get his righteousness. And that's it. You and I are called to live by faith in that basic truth and to understand that that God who sent his son to make us righteous, also loves and cares for you and that you can absolutely trust his goodness, that you can absolutely trust his righteousness, and you can absolutely trust that any situation you find yourself in, that he knows best. And when you absolutely lock into that, if you absolutely wholeheartedly buy into that, then the fear seems silly. Why would I ever fear when my future is that locked in? Just like Nehemiah had the word of God, he was doing the work of God so that these outside things didn't push him over the edge. You and I have the same anchor point. Why are we worried about this little bitty sliver and anything that would happen here? When for eternity, he's already locked us up securely as righteous, to enjoy his presence forever. Fear is just, it's a knockoff. And it's also a mirage. Because the reality is, you can't keep those things. You can't protect those things. And guess what? The ones that you lose weren't that great anyway. And when you can anchor yourself to say, hey, I'm going to stop fighting. I'm going to stop controlling. I'm going to stop worrying about this thing in the future. 
then you say, hey, he's done all the work and I'm going to sit back and trust it. And when these darts come at me, I'm going to trust him to take care of them. Stop striving and trust. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for this, these two episodes that show us that Nehemiah truly faced fearful situations. A fearful situation for his life when it's at risk. A fearful situation with his name and his reputation that he might have felt tempted to fix. But Lord, in both these cases, he recognizes that the story is yours. God, help us walk by faith like Nehemiah, not distracted by this empire here. Help us to honor you and to trust you with all the outcomes in our life. We pray in your son's name. Amen.